Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. This scripture say this, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time because he had, he'd amazed them with his magic. <clears throat> but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had, a re, had, a, had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the, this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Samaritans, this is the word of the Lord. So be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you that it has power in our lives, Lord, um, that, it, that, it, that it cuts to the core of who we are, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would cut to the core of our hearts this morning, as Cameron comes and he brings the word of God to us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Uh, friends, I'd like you uh, to meet uh, my friend Cameron McAllister. Cameron is uh, the co-founder of a ministry called Thinking Out Loud, which is a ministry that exists to bridge the gap between discipleship and apologetics. This ministry reaches into different spaces uh, through a book that Cameron and his father wrote, a regular podcast, as well as written materials from from Cameron uh, that have appeared in, in places like uh, Christianity Today and Relevant Magazine and many others. But one of Cameron's deepest desires is to help the church think through, lead, and disciple our children into the post-Christian context that awaits us and is even already in our midst. See, Cameron grew up in a, in a context like this himself in Austria as the son of missionaries, but then later moved to the States and he attended Collinsville High School what, what? And then went on to get a master's degree in apologetics from Houston Baptist University. Cam is married to Heather, and they have two children. And I think, guys, the thing that struck me the most in my coffee with Cam a couple months ago is his zeal for seeing the kingdom of God advance in our context today in the U.S. Um, I, I meet many people who say, they're typically older, they say things like this, I'm so glad I'm not raising kids in today's world. You, you heard people like that. Some of you have even said that. And it's discouraging for us, isn't it? Um, and, and, and over our coffee, what oozed from Cam was this passion to take this moment captive as the church, to, to seize it for Christ's kingdom, for ourselves, for our children, and for the world. Uh, would you guys uh, welcome Cameron McAllister to the stage?
Can you hear me now? There I am. It's wonderful to be here with you in Lawrenceville, Georgia. It is a special joy to share in my own hometown. In fact, it feels like I'm actually sharing in my front yard. You're about seven minutes away from my home. So this is a special joy. As Pastor Ryan said, and thank you so much for the invitation, and by the way, our family have dear friends here as well. I believe you know David and Jess Lee. So it's just an honor to be here with you and to be serving in Lawrenceville. So I am, as Pastor Ryan mentioned, a third culture kid, a missionary kid, and I was born in Vienna, Austria. And I know that you are a cosmopolitan group here, and I don't need to stress this with you, but when I first moved to Lawrenceville in 1998, when I told people I was from Austria, they weren't hearing Austria. What do you think they were hearing? They were hearing Australia, and they wondered why I didn't have a sexy accent, and whether there were kangaroos and koala bears in my backyard. No, we were talking Sigmund Freud and the land where the hills were alive with the sound of music. That's where I'm from. I want to open with a story from the Austria days. I was a very young boy at this time, probably about five years old. So I grew up in the ministry, you might say. My mom and dad were missionaries. They had been actively involved behind the Iron Curtain in the late 70s. That's where they met. And they were smuggling Bibles into communist nations. They had both briefly been imprisoned. So there's a rich legacy of steadfast faith in my family, and I do not take that for granted by any means. In later years, I have come to recognize how incredibly precious that actually is. But one night, my dad began to tell me this series of stories about a bad man. Villains are interesting, are they not? In fact, sometimes villains are more interesting than good guys. So I was captivated immediately. I loved hearing about this bad man. This bad man, said my dad, was very physically strong. This bad man was a criminal. He was a really scary guy, the kind of person you would avoid at all costs. As he began to tell me more and more about the bad man, I was eager to hear more and more about the bad man, and then eventually, some of you will see where this is going, he brought this all to a conclusion, and he said, son, that bad man was me. And it was such a surreal moment. Because I could not reconcile the loving father who is sitting on my bed with the hardened criminal. I didn't have a theological vocabulary at this point, but what I was experiencing was the first recognition of transformation. And that is something that does not just happen at an intellectual level. That is not just a change of mind. That's a change of heart, the heart, this deeply mysterious part of our lives, the very core of human beings. That's what has to change in you and me. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I've titled this sermon, The Reasons of the Heart. 
And I want to do this because I think so often, especially as we're thinking about reaching younger people, and we all have young people in our lives, whether we're married or single, we all have nieces and nephews, younger siblings, kids of friends, or young people who are simply our friends, and we recognize the crucial need for these young people to follow Christ. So this is a huge item of concern for all of us. But so often when we're thinking about young people, without recognizing what we're doing, this is a default setting of our culture, we focus only on what they think. Not necessarily what they want. And what you think and what you want are often at odds. And guess what always wins out in the end? Your desires win. And so desire is absolutely pivotal. So I want to begin by looking at the heart and its place in human life, defining it a little bit, and then I want to apply that definition to this very strange passage in Acts chapter 8. If some of you are a little nervous as you hear these words about sorcery and all sorts of strange happenings with Simon Magus, I think we're going to see a very clear picture of the inner dynamics of the heart. And then finally, I want to conclude by talking about addressing the heart. Because if we want to reach young people, if we want to reach anybody, thought is important, but we have to address the heart. That's the only way to really get through to a person. So what is the heart? Dallas Willard, a man I deeply admire, I remember Pastor Ryan and I were discussing him quite a bit over coffee. Dallas Willard once said this. He said, you look at the world right now or at any given time and it's so filled with trouble, so much conflict, so much rage, so much pain and suffering. Where does this all come from? And then so simply, so profoundly, Willard just smiles sadly and he says, it comes from the human heart. In his book, The Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard gives a fantastic definition. It doesn't sound very elegant, but it's incredibly accurate. So here's what he says. The heart is the executive center of the self. The heart is the place where all of your decisions get made. This is your will. So it's the core of the person. It's the deepest part of any human being. If that's true, then that means we are making a serious strategic mistake if we focus only on the head. And again, that is usually what we do. That's what animates a lot of our efforts. Good efforts, by the way. Now, I come from an apologetics background. Apologists are nerds. <laughs> Apologists love to talk about worldview. They love the conceptual language of worldview. I remember going to a conference once, and the host asked me, what's your favorite proof for the existence of God? Mine's the teleological argument. I think it's a whole lot more subtle than people usually give it credit for. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm a nerd, too. I enjoy that. But do most people think like that? 
I remember being at a university campus once. This was Berkeley, actually. This was a wonderful experience. We were doing some missions there. And in between events, you have to do this thing called flyering. If you're an introvert, flyering is your worst nightmare. This is a verb. This means you're walking around and bothering people and telling them you should come and there's pizza at this event, but also there's going to be a speaker. It'll be me. And we're going to talk about religion and all of the deepest subjects that you usually avoid, like the plague, because they're not safe. Want to come? So this one gentleman who I was with would walk around with these worldview surveys. Some of you may know what these are. They basically give you, walk you through a series of questions, and then you can sort of plot the person who's answered you on a map or chart them, and you can weigh the consistency of their beliefs. And he loved doing this. He would accost all of these students, and amazingly, many of them would cooperate with him. I guess they had more time on their hands than I thought college students did. And he would come back saying the same thing every, every day. Well, my goodness, these people are so inconsistent. Nothing lines up. They're all over the map. They're all over my map. It gradually began to dawn on me that the problem was not the inconsistency necessarily of the students' beliefs. The problem was the maps. Because in our day-to-day -day lives, we don't translate our experience into the conceptual language of a worldview map. We're much more driven by what we want. Blaise Pascal, one of the most famous sayings from Pascal's Ponces. The Ponces, loosely translated from the French, that means thoughts. You've probably been in an office environment where somebody has that sign that says, quiet, genius at work. Well, Pascal actually was a genius, a polymath. He invented the prototype of what would become a computer, by the way. He was a mathematician, but he's best remembered for his theological insights from this notebook called Thoughts which was never formally published, never systematized. But in that, he has this amazing saying, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. Isn't that just infuriating? You know, I hear that. We'll, we'll have to unpack that a little bit because when you, if you just hear that at first blush, that sounds like an elegant rendition of the theme of every Disney movie ever made. Follow your heart. Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying that if you want to truly understand a person, if you want to know them, you're not going to get very far if you only ask them what they think. We all know this. What you think and what you actually do often tell two very different stories. Isn't that a strange feature of life? We're walking contradictions when it comes to our thought and our wishes. We'll tell you we think all sorts of things. We'll tell you all sorts of facts about what we should do health-wise, our workout regimens that should be happening. But if you look into our fridges, it's a different story. Why is that? What's wrong with us? For years... I smoked. Let me ask you this. When we smoke, is the problem a lack of information? It's on the pack. Is it just that we're crazy? Somewhat. But we're driven by deeper longings, are we not? That's your heart.
That's your heart. Why is it that so many people who grow up in the church, who have heard all the right things, mastered all the right facts, they've got all the information, they've got the doctrine, they have the worldview. Why is it that nevertheless you look at the trajectory of their lives and it goes in such a different direction? They walk away from Christ. Is the problem a lack of information? No. What do you want? The philosopher James K.A. Smith has a little thought experiment, and I'm going to bring it in here because I think we need to hear this because some of us will need convincing on this point. What you think is important, but it is not front and center. It simply is not. So James K.A. Smith, who wrote Desiring the Kingdom, Imagining the Kingdom, and then followed it up with Awaiting the King, he says this. He goes, look, if you want to get to know somebody, what is going to tell you more about who they actually are? The question, what do you think? Or the question, what do you want? See, what you love, your desire, that actually gets to the core of who you are. Those are your inner motivations. Generally speaking, it's not an idea. It's not a concept. It's not a worldview that pulls you out of bed in the morning. It's a vision. It's a story. It's a dream. That's where you reach people. It is at the level of their desires. And this is why Dallas Willard says the problem is our wanters are broken. We want the wrong things. Naturally, we want the wrong things. Naturally, we are all hardwired to pursue our own wants and wishes and desires. It's a drive that's led us into a moment of crushing, chronic loneliness and fear and isolation. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We are more connected, more affluent. We're doing better generally on paper than we ever have. So what's wrong with us? Why is mental health such a crisis right now? We want the wrong things. Our hearts are broken. In recent years, social psychology, non-Christian social psychologists are actually corroborating this biblical anthropology. One example is Jonathan Haidt. Some of you will know Jonathan Haidt. He wrote recently, The Coddling of the American Mind. But he had another book that came out previously called The Righteous Mind. And the picture that he has in there, if I can appropriate his little image just for my own purposes here for a second, is of a rider on an elephant. What we like to think is that rational thought, our minds are what drive our lives. But he says, no, in fact, our minds are like this tiny little rider, and what we actually want, our hearts, that's the elephant. We lead with our hearts. And Simon Magus shows this to us magnificently in this story. Nothing I'm saying, by the way, is new at all. In fact, this is all drawn directly from St. Augustine of Hippo, that great doctor of the church. And the image that he uses for our lives as we're going through the world is the road of the affections. That's a beautiful construction. 
So as you walk through life, your journey of life, it's not so much ideas and concepts that are vying for your attention. Those are important. But more, what's more so happening is that you're being drawn in by competing visions. It's your desires that are front and center. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. So what's happening in Acts chapter 8? Let's bring in a little background information to help make sense of these events, because this is a strange passage. So Philip is preaching to the Samaritans, and if you looked at the, the preceding verses, he's not just preaching, he's performing miracles, signs and wonders. He's casting out evil spirits, he's healing the sick, and so his words are accompanied by tremendous power. He is speaking with the authority of Christ. And people are deeply compelled and moved. And even one Simon Magus. Who is Simon Magus? Simon is a sorcerer who dabbles in magic. And if you know anything about the history of magic and the occult, by the way, the history of sorcery and magic, just a fascinating aside for some of you, is deeply entangled with the history of the hard sciences. Pretty interesting, huh? Because the key goal here is control. But notice also, when, when I say sorcerer, I think of Jafar, or I think of some kind of a villain, or I think of a horror movie. But look at verse 10. People didn't translate him as an evil, villainous, scary guy. They said, no, he is performing signs that show us the power of Satan, the power of God. Why are they making this crucial mistake? You'll notice a strange occurrence happens here, too. There's an extra step. After Philip's preaching, more apostles are sent to lay their hands on these people so they can receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what is going on? Well, the Samaritans believed some very similar things to the Jews when it came to the coming Messiah. The one area of dispute had to do with his specific ethnic origins. They didn't think that the Messiah necessarily had to be a Jewish person. And their place of worship was Mount Gerizim rather than the temple. And if this sounds familiar, remember Jesus talking to the woman at the well. A good deal of what they're discussing has to do with the protocol surrounding worship. Now, it's true that Jesus does tell her that everybody one day will gather together to worship the Lord in spirit and truth and the temple and some of these specific sites will be somewhat obsolete on a future date, but he's not pushing away the specifics because he says salvation is from the Jews. Now, the reason he emphasizes that is because, yes, there's heated cultural tension between these people. They don't like each other, but like it or not, Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. He is a specific historical person, and all of those details matter. That's the problem with Jesus, by the way. If you haven't noticed, he's just so darn specific. 
And his claims on our life are so darn specific. He's not a way, a truth, and a life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what's at issue here. If the Samaritans don't surrender to Jesus of Nazareth, this specific man through whom comes the salvation of the world, they are not actually converting to Christianity. So think about the importance of the apostles now coming from Jerusalem, Jewish spiritual leaders and authorities laying their hands on these people who were formerly cultural enemies so they may receive the Holy Spirit. And now you get a picture of why this is such a significant event. I'm drawing my thinking, by the way, here from a man named David Gooding. He's not as well known in America. He is an Irish theologian, and he wrote a phenomenal commentary on the book of Acts. And this is a passage that often creates some confusion, but these are the historical details in place. So why is that important with Simon Magus? Well, a Simon Magus would never have been possible in Jerusalem because they had very strict protocol surrounding worship. Now, they had legalism and they had some spiritual problems of their own with their leadership, the Pharisees, but sorcery was not one of them. So Simon Magus was able to mislead these people on the basis of this historical confusion concerning the specific origins of the Messiah. So what I want to press into here has to do with the inner dynamics of conversion. The question has often been on our minds, why is it that we can see somebody respond so well to the gospel? Why is it that we can look at their lives and we can see what we believe to be a life devoted to Christ only to have the person turn around and walk away, it seems, or behave in a way that is very contrary? All of that comes into crystal clear terms in this story. If we look at Simon Magus, if we look at Simon, there are three features to what he does when he hears Philip's message. They have to do with his thought, his belief, and his response. His thought. He changes his mind. He's compelled by what Philip says because he recognizes the amazing power behind Philip's words, and he recognizes the truth. He changes his mind. And he believes. This is a haunting moment right now. Because again, since we are, our cultural default setting is to place such a high premium on thinking and on beliefs, getting our beliefs right, getting them all straight, that we're often really taken off guard when we see people living in conflict with their beliefs. But there's a haunting verse from the book of James that's probably coming to some of our minds right now. You believe, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Let's pause here and just acknowledge a very strange fact. The dark powers of this world believe in God, and they know the power of God. The ultimate picture of a perverse and destroyed will is Satan. And the problem is not one of thought and belief. The problem is a corrupted will. What do you want? 
And to make matters worse, I promise that this will get encouraging, okay? This is the sobering part of the sermon. Just hang in there. To make matters worse, he gets baptized. I've been teaching on this in Sunday school at my own church, Restoration Presbyterian, and one of the co-teachers with me, a friend of mine, Jonathan Welch, pointed out to me, I'm not going to take credit for this, he said, if the story had ended right there with, with Philip listening, changing his mind, believing, and then getting baptized, we would count it as a monumental success. Wow, this man has moved all the way from sorcery to discipleship to Jesus. Wow, what a celebration. That's not the end of the story, though, is it? When the apostles show up with spiritual authority, Simon's heart makes an appearance. Note that he doesn't want to receive the Holy Spirit. He wants the power to transmit the Holy Spirit. In his crude reasoning and in his crude mind and heart, he's thinking of the Holy Spirit as some sort of impersonal force that's at our beck and call. He's still thinking like a sorcerer because in his heart, he still wants control and power. He doesn't want to surrender. He wants control and power. And when Peter, oh, Peter, (laughs) Peter always has choice words, doesn't he? I love Peter. He's always, he'll start off so well. And then he'll put, his, he'll put his foot in his mouth the next, in the next few sentence, sentence, sentences. He'll get from God, you know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for the, and, and I will build my church on this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, that's great. But then just a few verses later, he gets, get behind me, Satan, because he's questioning Jesus's crucifixion. He's up and down, up and down, but he's always very strong in his wording, is he not? And he is here too. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could buy the Holy Spirit. You know, we actually get a word from this passage, simony. Simony is about people who are spiritual charlatans and abusers who profit off that abuse because they want power and control rather than to see any kind of healing in other people's lives, let alone their own. And that's where Simon is. But notice what Peter calls out in these passages. It's not Simon's mind. His mind's working just fine. He's a really sharp guy. He's very perceptive. It's his heart that is in the gall of iniquity and bitterness. Right? The important question here for Simon is not so much, Simon, what do you think of Christianity? Talk to me about the Christian worldview. Let's talk about doctrine. It's what do you want? Friends, that's the most important question in your life. That's the most important question for the young people in your life as well. What do you want? It's our desires that have to be transformed. But we have quite a bit of hope here at the end too, don't we? Because Simon Magus requests prayer. He doesn't pray himself, by the way, does he? He asks for them to pray for him. In other words, he's recognizing their spiritual authority and he's recognizing 
the truth of Peter's diagnosis of his heart. That's why he can't pray at that moment. He needs them to intercede for him. He's on the right track. There's a pivotal distinction. And if you think back to what my story was at the beginning between our initial conversion, when we give our lives to Christ, when we surrender to him, and then the transformation that takes place, often painstakingly, often slowly, and it's very difficult to measure this with the typical metrics that we like in our world. Is it not? So a word of encouragement to you, if you have somebody in your life who's caused you quite a bit of fear and despair and discouragement, their story is not over. And also, you don't know what's in their heart. We don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. You can control. I'm going to tell you an amazing fact that I think you probably all already know. You can control every part of a person except their heart. This world is a terrible place in many ways. It's a fallen, broken world, and awful things happen. We just heard that this morning. It's part of being in the fallen condition. And another horrific aspect of that is that people control other people's bodies. People can control minds. It really does happen. There is such a thing as mind control. There's no such thing as heart control. Oh, you can influence the heart. You can break a heart. You can hurt a person's heart. But there is no permanent holding cell for the human heart. Because that's your will. That's your desire. And you could be locked into the deepest form of isolation. And still, your heart will rove and roam free that is an amazing and terrible fact. You can't control the human heart. You can reach it. You can influence it. But the only one who has complete and total access to a heart is our Lord. He's the only one who can ultimately reach a heart. He's the only one who can penetrate a hardened heart. Friends, that's good news. Take that yoke, that burden of control off of your shoulders. It's a losing battle. You can't do it. But you can be a faithful witness. You can be actively involved in a person's life by praying for them, interceding for them. You can especially talk to them about what they want. I'm going to close with another story. Here's a bookended story. So the first one was a great, encouraging story. From my younger years with my dad, and this second story, both of these, by the way, are taken from the book that, we, that dad and I wrote together, Faith That Lasts. The second story constitutes really the central conflict that animates that book. So we moved to the United States in 1998, at which point I went to Collins Hill High School, and it was horrible. <laughs> I went from a school of 126 kids, grades 1 through 12, to Collins Hill, and I didn't like school anyway. I always had a problem with authority when I was younger. I don't know if that sounds familiar to any of you. I didn't like my teachers. I had a terrible attitude. And to make matters worse, I was pale and shy and awkward. And I came from Austria, and everybody thought I was from Australia. It was very frustrating. 
I had no idea who I was. Most of these kids had grown up together, losers, and I didn't know anybody. And so I decided I would start playing into this outsider role since that seemed to fit best. And my goal in these high school years was to, well, I was a, I was, I was a death metal singer. And my five-year plan was to move to Scandinavia, where a lot of record labels that I had my eye on were, were existed, and to howl into the Arctic winds. These were my aspirations. Now, my dad, understandably, who had continued in ministry, that's why we moved, didn't think this was a great five-year career plan. And things were very strained between the two of us, and it was awkward. He couldn't even talk to me. He used to write me letters and slip them under my door. It was like a hotel invoice every day. So it was in these years, the most, the, the, the most unsafe subject in our home was my future. My dad's from Scotland, so he'd say, future. So if that came up, boy, we avoided that subject like the plague. One morning, six o'clock in the morning, I'm trying to cram some breakfast into my face and catch the bus, and I come downstairs to the kitchen, and there sits my dad behind a, just a huge wall of books. It's a very bad sign. Because that means he's been up for a long time, possibly the wee hours, and probably thinking about my future. And so I thought, I gotta get, I gotta get out of here as quickly as I can before he says anything annoying or asks me any irritating question. So I hightail it to the fridge, and Dad locks eyes with me and says, Son, why do you call yourself a Christian? In that moment, I hated the man. That was the question I had been ferociously avoiding ever since we landed in the USA. He wasn't asking me what I thought. I knew what I needed to think. I had all the right thoughts in my head. He was asking me what I wanted. And I was living a life of complete and total selfishness devoted only to my own pursuits and will. He was asking me about the condition of my heart. It wasn't an instant turnaround. I wish it was. Don't you wish we had switches that we could flip on people, especially our kids? We can't. But that was an instrumental moment that he, by the way, at that moment, regarded as a failure. Because I said, Dad, I don't know. Can we just talk about this later? It's six in the morning. Well, that's just perfect, isn't it? And he huffed off to the basement where there were more books where he could hide. How many family conversations end like that? Just an awkward moment and then an, an argument? It looked like a total failure to me. It was the shock of his life when he came to recognize years later that this played a pivotal role in bringing me to my senses because he was talking about my heart. And if we want to reach the heart, if we want to address people, thought matters. But most important, ask them what they want. Let's pray. Father God, you have given us hearts, and it's a deeply mysterious thing to have a heart. I ask that you would help us to want what you want, and in some cases that just means us praying the simple prayer, Father, help me to not want what I want, but to want what you want. May that be true of us, and may that be true of the young people in our lives. We pray this in your son's righteous and holy name.
Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.